Hey, I would like to ask you, if you would, to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. And I would like to ask you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9, because we're going to be there. Uh, there is, of course, a Bible app event for that. You can follow along that way if you would like to. Uh, I think it might be helpful to you to see the text in front of you. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. Those of you who are online, we positioned the candle so that you could see it there. I don't know if it looked like Drew's head was on fire when he was leading music, but his heart was. I can tell you that much anyway, right? Yeah, it's the first Sunday of Advent, and it's the second day of deer season. I'm glad you are here, and I'm glad that you hunters are all watching on, online. In my kind of fantasy world in my brain, I imagine hunters all over Pennsylvania and all the woods of Pennsylvania with their little cell phones glued to it, watching the baby dedication, listening to the music, and listening to the sermon. Uh, and they'd be giving us likes, but you can't do that with your gloves on. It's a little bit chilly out there, so I'm sure they're watching, right? <laughs> wow, maybe not, huh? I remember in my, in my early years, I can remember sitting under a tree um, before dawn on opening day, a particular week or year of hunting, um, two days beforehand on Saturday, I'd actually walked into the woods and kind of picked out my spot. I had it narrowed down. I spent all my life just about in the woods, it seemed. And as I was there watching that or, or sitting there um, or picking that place out, I guess I should say, I picked a place that had some good visibility, had a really comfortable place to sit and was covered with ground pine. You know what ground pine is? It's just so beautiful. People pull that out and decorate with it. It's so beautiful in the woods there. Just just a, a great spot. And I thought, this is going to be the perfect place for me to sit. So I went in on the first day long before sunrise and and turned off my flashlight and laid my 3040 Craig across my lap and and just sat there. And it was one of those nights that was just pitch black, you know? I mean, you couldn't see the hand in front of your face. It was dark as dark could be there. And I'm sitting there in a quietness, and as morning approached, and just the first hint of light where you could actually see maybe your fingers in front of your face, I happened to look down at my blue jeans that I put on that morning, and they were white. I mean, they were white as white could be. And I thought to myself, I have white pants. I had painter pants because back in the day, that's what you wore to be cool, right? But I didn't put those on. I know I put blue jeans on this morning. And then I looked down at the ground beneath me and it was black. I mean, it was black as the night. And I'm like, I know that I'm sitting on ground pine. And I felt, yeah, it, but why is it just black and white? And then I remembered something. I remember something that Mr. Frontino had said in probably eighth grade life science, you know? I, I can remember he was talking about light and about color. And I remember him saying that, that color like, is really, uh, it is uh, the exhibition of um, an object reflecting back to you a certain kind of light that your eyes perceive as a certain color. And so when you're looking at a red rose, what you're seeing is the light that is reflected from that rose. And that rose only has ability to reflect red. It can't reflect blue. It can't reflect anything. Yellow, no, just red. And it gives you that, that red brilliance that you see. And a blue car, it can't reflect red. It can only reflect blue and green. You get the point, right? And I thought to myself, that's why I'm not seeing the blue here. It's not reflecting. Because Mr. Frontino added this. He said, when there's inadequate light, the color reflected is so little that the human eye perceives it to be without color. And what you see in that dim, dim light is something that looks like black and white. And my jeans came out as white for some reason, and the ground pine came out as black. So I'm sitting there in the dark. I don't know that I had to stop, but the reality was that without sufficient light, we don't see the world as it really is. Without sufficient light, we're really handicapped in, in what we can see, and 
without spiritual light, we walk in darkness. This Advent, we're going to talk about how God transitions the world we're in from that dim gray darkness into brilliant, glorious light. And he promises, catch that word, promises that he's doing that. Now, when I use that word promises, I know for some people, they just kind of nod like, yep, God promises that. Some people, when you hear the phrase, I promise, maybe an eyebrow goes up because maybe somebody broke promises in your past repeatedly. And so a promise is something you kind of like, yeah, we'll see, we'll see. And I think sometimes we have trouble even with the promises of God. And I think one of the reasons for that is because sometimes God's promises are just misrepresented. Maybe I should even say this. Sometimes things are presented as promises of God that just flat are not promises of God. And when that happens, then sometimes we feel like, well, God broke his promise. We might not say that out loud. That's kind of what it amounts to. Let me give you an example of this if I could. You can kind of lose your trust in God when you've been given promises that really aren't from God to begin with. This can happen with a lot of things. It can happen with healing, with divine healing. I believe in healing. I pray for and anoint people with oil, and I've seen people healed miraculously. I believe I have been healed, that God has touched my body and made me well on more than one occasion. I believe in the raising of the dead. I saw a guy sitting right about where Rachel is die one Sunday morning, and before we'd sung all the verses of just as I, no, what was it, Amazing Grace, he got up and said, what's everybody looking at? It was him. And that was Glenn Zorger. Ten years later, he died a second time, and he didn't come back. I'll never forget that moment, though. That was quite a moment in church history at Kerbinsville Alliance. So when I say to you, sometimes when people talk about healing, I'm not speaking from the position of someone who doesn't believe in it. I believe in it, but I am very careful, very careful about the promises I make on God's behalf of what he's going to do when someone is looking to be healed. Friends of ours, we're studying for ministry. When the husband developed a chronic disease that changed the course of his life. And they weren't going to be able to enter the ministry they felt God had called them to. Think about that for a moment. God calls you to do something. An illness comes into your life. You're not going to be able to do that. Someone, he was sharing that, they were sharing that as a prayer request in their church family. And because they were studying for ministry at school, they shared it in the classroom, in the prayer time. And someone from one of those classrooms, being very well-intentioned, no doubt, said this to them. Hey, God spoke to me in my quiet time the other night, and he's going to heal you. He's going to heal you, and you will be well. It's a promise. That was about 35 years ago. God has not healed him. I feel like when you make those kind of promises, you need to be really careful because the Bible does say in commandment number three, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And I think that saying he said something he didn't fits under that category. Something like that. A seeming promise from God not coming to be that can injure your soul. It injured our friends. I know that God didn't break his promise in that case. Sometimes people put words in God's mouth. Don't do that. And if that's happened to you, don't blame God for that. That's not him 
that broke any promise. You can trust the promises of God, even though others misrepresent him, you can trust in his promises. And, and I believe it's really important that we trust in his promises because trusting in the promises is what transitions us from darkness into light. In fact, to be emotionally healthy, I think to be psychologically healthy, and absolutely to be spiritually healthy, you need to trust in the promises of God. And you can do that. Because the scripture tells us that God is not a human, that he should lie. He's not a human being, that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? No. Does he promise and not fulfill? No. That passage in Numbers twenty three nineteen. those are rhetorical questions. And, and, and a rhetorical question is placed in a situation when you know that everybody knows better than that. Of course he doesn't speak and then not act. He's God. Of course he doesn't promise and not fulfill. He's God and God is honest. And God is faithful. And God is trustworthy. And if anyone ever tells you that God promised something, and then that promise does not come to pass, guess who's wrong in that, in that little equation there? It's not God. You can believe his promises. And that's good. Because it is the promises of God that actually bring light into our lives. I told you to open your Bibles to Isaiah 9 like an hour ago, right? <laughs> We're going to read through that. We're going to read seven verses there. Let's read it together. You follow along silently as I read. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. And this next part, you might recognize it because it's a Christmas passage. In fact, this passage of scripture is something we consider messianic. You hear the word messianic and you say, I'm not sure that sounds like a messy attic and that is what I have at home. Messianic comes from the word Messiah. The Messiah, the Christ, Jesus, is pointed out in this passage of scripture. It's messianic, okay? Listen to it in verse two. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at a harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. It will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom and establish, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I want to pull a few promises out of that passage. Promises that it's really important for you to grab a hold of. And the first one is that opening phrase, no more gloom. Do you see it? It's the start of verse one. It says, nevertheless, there'll be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Isn't gloom kind of an odd word there? I don't feel like the Bible should use the word gloom. It's like Shakespeare using the word metaphysical, which he does, by the way. Gloom, really? Gloom, what, that sounds like a 1970s word to me. It's not. 
You, you may think of gloom as relating to sadness or feeling down in the dumps or kind of feeling blue, but it's not a matter of just shaking off the blues. It means being in the dark. A gloomy place is a dark place where it's hard to see things, like a maybe a dark dungeon, a gloomy dungeon. In one sense, it, it's used about our understanding. You ever hear someone say, oh, he's mighty dim, right? People have said that about me once or twice in my life, right? I'm sure. It means without understanding and struggling to understand things. It, it, it contains within it a sense of distress and a sense of anxiety and a sense of despair. Now, let me ask you something. You ever feel distressed? You ever feel anxious? Are you ever tempted to despair? Here's what God is promising. He is promising that he will take away the darkness, that he will pull away the anxiety and the despair that is, that is due to the cluelessness we have regarding spiritual realities. We're walking around in the dark. He's promising to bring light and the gloom of darkness and despair. He's promising to eliminate I'm going to say this sentence. I'm going to say a variation of it four times today. Listen to it. The very fact that God promises to take away your gloom helps remove your gloom right now. It helps remove your gloom right now. If you trust the promise, it does that. When you're looking at verse 2, you see a second promise that God is promising to give light. It says, great light. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And that feels like it would be us, right? Because there is a darkness in our world today. Those who are spiritually in tune will, will agree that, yeah, there's a spiritual darkness pervading our world today. A darkness of mistrust, a darkness of anger, a darkness of chaos and disillusionment, of misinformation. And have you noticed the gloom in every sense of the word, that accompanies it. Listen to something that the Apostle John writes in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 12. He says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, I was thinking about that, and I'm saying, okay, Jesus, how in the world are you giving me that now? How are you giving me that now? And I feel like while it is an incredible blessing to have grown up in a Christian family, attending church and Sunday school and, and, and kids' Bible studies and kids' groups and things like that to learn about the word of God, I feel like there would be kind of a, a blessing in not hearing that stuff till later in life because you can be like, wow, this stands in sharp relief, in sharp contrast to what I have experienced. And so while it's 99.9% blessing, to grow up in a Christian home, there's that 0.1% benefit to discovering Christ anew or later. I was thinking about that. Jesus, how do you eliminate darkness now? And I have some answers to that. One of them is this. He tells you that God loves you. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 say, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's light. That's light that you would not know had Jesus not told you. 
And that's how he gives you life. Another, he takes your sin and he forgives you. In the very next verse of John 3, in verse 18, Jesus says, whoever believes in him and to him as himself is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. That's light. It's light that you would not know had Jesus not told you. That's how he gives you light. He tells you that he is with you. In the Great Commission, which the Christian Missionary Alliance feels like we kind of own, we don't, (laughs) but we love it. The very last part of it, Jesus says to his followers, he says, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That's light. That's light that they would not have known had he not told them. And you would not know that had he not given you that light. (laughs) Now here it is. Here's that sentence again. Trusting the very fact that God promises this light actually gives you light. Believing the promise gives you the light. Here's a third promise that he gives, relief. Relief from oppression. (laughs) Isaiah 9.4 says, For as in a day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Now some of you are like, Midian's defeat. I think I saw that on Star Trek. Probably not. Probably not. (laughs) If you haven't read your Bible in a while, maybe you have forgotten the story of Gideon. Gideon was the one who was involved in Midian's defeat. I had to look it up myself so I could be sure of that, right? And, And what we have there is Midian is this group of people. It's a name of people. The Midianites, we might think of them, but it's just called Midian. The Midian oppress the people of God. You can get kind of a a sampling of this when you look at Judges chapter 6, just three verses, 3, 4, and 5. Let me read them to you. It says, whenever the Israelites, the people of God, planted their crops, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and other eastern people invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza. They didn't spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts, It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land and ravaged it. Yeah. So those are the people oppressing, bringing oppression to God or to God's people. They're the people from whom Israel was seeking relief. And you can read Judges 6 if you want to know how God brought that about. I'm just going to say it this way, that in the midst of Midian's darkness, God used 300 men with light to confuse Midian and cause them to attack one another. Light is powerful. And it brings relief. Jesus says in Luke chapter 8, verse 17, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest. Nothing, nor is anything secret, that will not be made known and come to light. Light exposes evil and relieves the oppression it brings. Okay, here's the third time on this sentence. Ready for it? Trusting the very fact that God promises you relief is an actual relief. Trust the promises of God. And in this passage, God promises peace, the end of distress. The the language that Isaiah uses in verse 5 is the language of war. Listen to it. Follow along if your Bible's still open. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. It will be fuel for the fire. I've been thinking about that. Garments worn in blood. I get it that The warrior's boots are no longer necessary because 
the, the Messiah is bringing peace. But what's with the garment rolled in blood? And I imagine there's a number of different ways to understand that. But I was thinking about it. I was thinking if you were a warrior who is constantly in battle, that when you roll up your, your cloak at night, it's just rolled in blood. Think how it would feel. Think how it would smell. Think of the misery, the distress that that would put you in. Well, to the battle-weary warrior, those words, every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. It will be fuel for the fire. That would be beautiful to a battle-weary warrior. You know, even if you have an experienced con- combat, <laughs> you've found yourself no doubt exhausted experiencing conflict. Different people have told me about conflict they're dealing with at work regarding mandates. That's relevant, right? Others have said about conflict in their family, maybe regarding politics, and they're not coming to Christmas this year because what? And we've all heard about conflict in churches. Really? Yeah, really. God promises here that conflict, which seems to want to consume our lives, will itself be consumed. Here's the sentence. The very fact that God promises an end to distress brings the end to distress in your own life and gives a sense of peace. You know, as you look at this passage, it is a Christmas passage. I mean, sometimes when people hear this, they're like, wait a minute, I didn't know that Handel wrote that. Friedrich Handel wrote that? No, Isaiah wrote that. Friedrich Handel wrote a Messiah, a beautiful piece of music. For unto us a child is born. Trust me, it's beautiful. I sing almost every week just to bug Drew. (laughs) Did you hear him call out? It's working. Good, good, good. This is a Christmas passage because the essence of this promise is the child of Christmas. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's the child. That's Jesus. And this Christ is for us. The King James and Handel say, unto us a child is born. Modern translations say to us. He is for us. He is given to us. And the government, the leadership, that'll be his responsibility. And government will be on his shoulders. I don't know about you. I think I do, but I'm not going to say this. When I look at some of the names on the election ballot, I find myself asking, really? (laughs) Is this the best we can do? Is that what we got? Is this the best we have to offer? Not always. Not everyone on a ballot. But often, don't you feel that way? Is this the best we have to offer? For now, apparently, right? But here's the promise. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will rest upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He's born to us. He's given to us. Jesus, the one who made you, who loved you, and gave himself for you, promises a rulership that is just and upright. Christ is for us. And the child of Christmas, Christ, he will lead us in peace. It's in the very next verse. Verse 7 of Isaiah 9. You're still open there. 
Look at the opening sentence to it. It says, of the greatness of his government, and here's the word peace, there will be no end. Think about that word peace. It's really the Hebrew word shalom. You may be familiar with that word. It means much more than the absence of war, you understand. Bible scholars remind us it means well-being and prosperity and wholeness of spirit and life, as well as the absence of hostility. Of the greatness of his shalom, there will be no end, no end. Another important word in that, in that portion is the word justice and righteousness, doing the right thing. It's in the middle of verse 7. It says, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. When the Bible speaks of justice and righteousness, when it speaks of justice, it means at least two things. First, justice has to do with dealing with evil. So I can remember when I was a little kid and I was learning about Hitler and World War II and the things that he'd done. I can remember thinking to myself, and then he took his own life. You know that at the end of his life, he took, or at the end of the war, he took his own life. And I can remember thinking to myself, that's a ripoff. They never got to put him on trial and punish him for that. He escaped justice. No, he didn't. <laughs> no, he didn't. Biblically speaking, when Hitler chose to end his own life, he did not escape justice. He threw himself in the face of justice. That's what he did. Justice, we think of as dealing with evil, and rightly so. But there's a second side to justice that's equally important. And that is living in a way that you do right by others. And you do right to others. Justice and righteousness go together. So justice is doing righteous things like paying attention to that person who is in need and not just walking on by. It's treating others fairly and not using them to your advantage. It's being humane with others because Christ is so humane with you. It's looking out for the weak and helping those who are in need. God promises justice and righteousness through the Christ child. This child will act with zeal. With zeal. That's kind of a weird word too. But it's in the last sentence in verse 7. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So what is it? What's going to accomplish this? What makes these promises a reality? It's not going to be you or me. It's not going to be another politician. It's not going to be another demonstration, peaceful or otherwise. It's not going to be another great preacher, not even me. That was a joke. You could have laughed. I know the hunters all laughed out in the woods when they heard that. Thank you again. (laughs) That which makes, hear this, that which makes this a reality is nothing less than the zeal of the Lord Almighty himself. Do not water that down. Do not put cream in that cup. Take it straight. It's the zeal of the Almighty Lord. And it is pure and undiluted, full strength. His jealousy for what is rightfully his, that's what will make this happen. Scholars use words when they want to talk about zeal. They use words like intense fervor or passion that was willing to suffer. Emotion that is greater than the greatest wrath or anger a person could muster. It is zeal used here. It is probably the strongest word that Isaiah could think of. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish it. This child 
This Christ is going to bring peace, shalom. He's going to bring justice, fairness, and righteousness. And this is his promise. He will make light come out of darkness. Darkness. (laughs) Do you ever feel like you're living in some darkness? (laughs) Do you ever feel like darkness is winning? Hmm. Let me invite you into the light. Let me invite you into the light. You know, this week... uh, We did some work on the lights here. Chris and I did some work on the lights. And you should be able to see me better. In the past, I was kind of in, we had the light shining wrong. See, my my face is kind of in the dark here, right? And and I would always, there's some blue tape there. I always had to stay right on the blue tape. And even then, I wasn't really in the light. But now, look, when I move out of the darkness into the light, you can see me better, right? Move back over there, Pastor Steve. It looks better when you're in the dark. (laughs) I want to invite you to move out of the darkness into the light. That's what I want to invite you to do. I want to invite you to turn your heart from your own darkness that is inside you. That's another way of inviting you to repent. And you know exactly what I mean. Just turn from the darkness. I want to invite you to trust in the light with all your heart and to believe his promises. To trust in Jesus, who is the embodiment of the promises of this passage we have just read, written 700 years before he was born in Bethlehem. Trust in him because he died for the darkness of your sin so that you could walk in the brilliance of his light. In the midst of a very dark, dark world, his light is shining brightly. Even even when something seems to be tragic, you can see the light of God if you look. Someone faces a sorrow that comes with rejection and that can bring them to God. Or someone deals with the pain of sickness, and that can bring them to God. Or someone faces just the darkness of this world, and that can bring them to God. What needs to happen is they need to turn toward the light and trust the light. If you've never done that personally, if you've never made a decision to trust Christ in his light, turning away from yourself, you can do that right here. You don't need like a special ceremony to do that or anything. You can talk to him in the quietness of your heart. And if you did that a long time ago and you feel like you need to renew it, you talk to him with similar words. I want to pray that we can do that as we conclude our time together. If you're comfortable doing so, let's stand together. And let's bow our hearts. Can we pray together? Father in heaven, we are so thankful for your great love for us. Jesus, thank you for being the light of the world. God, thank you for so loving the world that you gave your one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. We are so thankful for your saving power. As we're standing here right now in the quietness of this moment, we would ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, help us peer into our heart. Is it dark there at all? And God, if we've never really turned away from that darkness and embraced your light, anyone here that's never done that, may they right now, just in the silence of their thoughts, speak to you and say, God, I know there's darkness here. I don't like it. You don't like it. I would turn my heart away from it. And I would turn it toward the light of Jesus. 
Jesus, I trust that you paid the price for my darkness. Forgive me. And may I walk into your glorious light. Thank you, Jesus. Think of different ones of us, God, who maybe, who maybe did that a long time ago and let it grow stale. And when we let that grow stale and then darkness comes into our life, we act like we're surprised. Forgive us for being so foolish. We would turn away from that darkness. We would embrace the light of Christ wholeheartedly. We want to live for the one who took the darkness for us on the cross. We want to live in the glorious beauty of your light, Jesus. For it's in your name I pray. Amen.